The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Well, hey, thanks for joining us from the rooftop today. Um, we're glad you're here. I want to take a moment and celebrate the simple fact that uh, some of you guys were aware that yesterday we did something we had never done before. We just thought, you know what, what does it mean to uh, you know fight hunger, to deal with the fact that um, so many families, so many kids are not getting three meals a day, that getting food on the table isn't as easy as it used to be. And so we're like, what can we do? What is something? And we thought, a food drive, great, let's do that. But then we added the online telethon. So if you were part of that for two hours yesterday, from five to seven, we did an online telethon just going, I don't know how it's going to go. Let's give it a shot. And uh, I just want to say this. Thanks so much to everyone that gave. And uh, we were able to collect 110 boxes of food. That was two thirds of the food bank's truck full, which is awesome as well. We were able to raise almost $24,000. And that all goes to the food banks in Marysville and Homish. Yeah. Honk for that. Definitely definitely worth celebrating. So I just thought that was really cool. Again, want to say thank you to anybody that was able to donate. Maybe you swung by and, and, and were able to give some food. Maybe you were able to donate. And, and by the way, you can still go to grove.church right now and you can log in and, and, and check out grove.church, click on give, and you can give to Fight Hunger still. And we'll make sure all of that is given to both Marysville and Homish Food Bank. So thank you so much for making that happen. Um, we're in a series called Welcome to the Jungle. And what we're doing is we're navigating this, this world that we we live in as far as uh, there's maybe people that you live with and it's immediate family or it's roommates or you have extended family that live around or live across the country or around the world or you have friendships or you have coworkers. And the fact is the world we live in is a jungle of relationships. We don't all see eye to eye. We don't all believe the same things. We don't all, you know, kind of have the same background. We all filter things kind of uniquely and differently. And it really means that relationships aren't necessarily always easy. And so when difficulties come, what do we do? That is the context of this letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. It was his concern that he wrote this letter because they were a multicultural church that had different backgrounds and contexts and even beliefs. And he kind of said, listen, with all this infighting and all these kind of issues going on, let's put some parameters around how we need to exist together. So yes, he created some things going, hey, here, here's some rules on how to live, more or less. And then at chapter 13, he kind of takes a turn a little bit, but, but what he's saying is this, and this is for all of us. You can have rules and you can have guidelines and you can have parameters and guardrails around your relationships as we exist together, but don't ever forget that without love, it doesn't mean anything. And so that's where he writes what we kind of hear read at weddings or we've put on plaques on our walls in our bedrooms or in our house and, you know, what love is. But Paul reminded us what love is. And we're going to talk about that, but um, you need to understand, first of all, that the context of this love is this is God's love for us in Christ. That's what it looks like. So when you read chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 8, as he talks about it, that's God's love for you and I in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It's that challenge to you and me to live spirit-filled, spirit-led lives that we can love the way God loves us. So the challenge to the church was, hey, you need to love in your relationships like this. And so he goes into love is patient, love is kind. We're gonna get to that here in a moment. As well, if you got a smartphone uh, with a Bible app or you got a Bible with you, which we encourage, um, we're gonna be in Esther. If you kind of go midway to your Bible and kind of hang a left, it's, it's before Psalms and Proverbs. There's a book that's called Esther, and we're gonna talk about that 
today. So we'll get there here in a moment. Um, I got a car when I started driving at 16 years old, and that's probably a common tale. Many of us, we got our license at 16 and maybe got a car. It wasn't my car technically, but it was something that, that my, my parents said, here, here's a car to drive. And um, man, I don't mean to brag, but it was sweet. It had, uh, it had four wheels, and um, it had a steering wheel and an engine, and it most of the time got me from point A to point B. And to be honest with you, that's about it, because it was a 1982 four-door hatchback Volkswagen Dasher. It was a diesel, and at one point the muffler came off, and it was crazy loud. And when you would go up hills, sometimes the exhaust would get inside. You'd have to roll the windows down. Uh, being the master car stereo installer that I've been all my life, I put the stereo in, and every time you honk the horn, it would clear out all the stations and turn off immediately. Um, and so this is the car that I first drove. It was a stick shift, and it was a diesel, so you had to get in, turn the key, and let the glow plugs warm up before you could even start the car. Um, and this was just a fact. Now, at the same time, just like you, there were a lot of people at that age were getting their license. So some of my friends in the same grade getting our licenses and stuff. And I remember a couple of my buddies, they were cousins. They both got beautiful Toyota trucks. They put lift kits on them, put cool wheels on them, got awesome stereos. Anybody remember the original Back to the Future when Michael J. Fox is like, oh man, look at that truck and it's a Toyota? That's basically the situation. But here's the thing about those friends of mine back in that day. They never once made me feel inferior because my car was not a great car. They never once made me feel like, look at all I have and look at what you don't have. Never one time. In fact, we just kind of made light of it because they called my car the Lamborghini because uh, it obviously was the opposite of a Lamborghini. But, but here's the thing. I love that they weren't the kind of friends that would boast about what they had in order that I would somehow feel lesser. And, and I don't know what goes on in us, but it, it even goes back to some of those conversations maybe you had as a kid, I had as a kid at times. Like, remember the whole, like, my dad can beat up your dad. Nah, my dad can beat up your dad. And if that conversation continued, somehow it became like, my mom can beat up your mom, as if that's a pretty picture. You know, my, my sister can beat up your sister, my grandma, you know, whatever. But there's something in us that is a little bit of like, there's a pride there, and there's a sense of wanting to sort of say certain things that, that kind of become later on in life something ugly if that goes left unchecked. When you're younger, it might be the my dad can beat up your dad thing, and that's kind of a silly conversation. Hopefully your parents have never had to get in a fight like that. Anyway, but later on, what it becomes is you're 11 or you're 12 or 13, and you get a new bike, and you're excited about your new bike, and you ride it over to your friend's house, and it's awesome, and you park it in the driveway, and your buddy comes out, and, and, and he sees that you got a new bike, but the first thing he might say, oh, my bike's better. Mine was bought at one of those specialty bike shops. My, mine's worth more than yours, or mine has this or that on it, and yours doesn't have that. And once again, if that continues in life to go unchecked, it's, it's, it's kind of, I think of that song, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. And no, I'm not going to keep singing, but um, it's kind of that. And as life goes on, it becomes a lifestyle of, for some reason, upstaging other people, of, of, of pulling rank in relation to other people. And they're not so fun to be around. 
They always have the better job. They're going on the more you know exotic vacation. They own the, the, the stuff that's nicer than yours. And somehow there's always this sense of whatever you've done or whatever you have or wherever you've got in life, there's someone else that you feel inferior to because sometimes people can make us feel like that. That's Paul's warning to us when it comes to love in 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. It says this, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. And last week, we talked about envy and jealousy and anger. But he goes on to say, um, love, it does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. Love is not self-seeking. And that's where I want to take a look, and you got to go on a journey with me here today, on, on a story uh, in, it's basically the book of Esther. And this story, just as, as a kind of an outline, the reason this story is so important to the nation of Israel in particular historically is because this story is where they get the celebration of Purim. It starts way back when, but let me just jump in. And in Esther chapter one, we're talking about a time when a king named Xerxes was the king of Persia. We're talking about 486 BC all the way to 475 BC. He ruled in Persia. And, and it says that three years into his reign, he had a lavish party and he invited all of the elites in Persia to come to this lavish party. And listen to this. The party lasted 180 days. Like, I don't know what kind of party you've ever been to, or maybe you've been part of a wedding where it's like this day and this day and this day, and it's a you know weekend long and all this stuff. 180 day party, like all kinds of craziness for 180 days. Think about this, eating cake for 180 days. Some of you are like, yeah, baby, bring it on. Like, no, no, no. And it's no more COVID-15. It's COVID-50 if you do that. So don't do it. But anyway, um, huge party. At the end of that party, he threw another party, but it wasn't just for the elites, it was for everybody. And that party lasted a week. At the end of that party, it says that the king decided, hey, and he's a little tipsy, he's like, hey, I wanna have my wife come out and walk the runway so everybody can see how beautiful my wife is. And basically, his wife refuses. I'm not gonna do that. Absolutely not. The king is shamed and he gets so mad that he basically boots her out from being the queen and she's gone and she's done, that's it. Well, then a search goes out and he's looking for a new queen. And I don't know about you, but if you're a female, you're like, I don't want to be his queen. This guy's a jerk. And you're right, he is. But for a year, there's different individuals that go through more or less an interview process. And he finally lands on, wow, I really dig this gal, Esther. I want her to be the new queen. So Esther becomes queen. Now, the, the king, king Xerxes doesn't know at this point that she comes from Jewish descent. That's important in the story. And we'll get to that in a moment, okay? Esther is now queen. Xerxes is king. Esther has a cousin who's a bit older than her that actually helped raise her and speaks into her life at different times. So this guy's name is Mordecai, and Mordecai is actually serving the king and has a decently high position in the kingdom. So here's Mordecai, and again, he's, he's cousins, and they both come from Jewish descent, but that's not necessarily public information, and they're kind of secretive about their relationship as far as being cousins, and so she's queen. Now, follow me here. There's a guy named Haman. Haman is second in command in all of Persia, 
And Haman is not a great guy. We're going to get back to the boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking in just a second here. But Haman is not a good guy. And Haman expects everybody to pay him the courtesy he deserves from kissing his ring to bowing to him, things like that. Every time that Haman encounters Mordecai, they pass by each other or whatever, because Mordecai is lower in rank, he is required to do certain things that basically he refuses to do. Haman is frustrated. And it starts out with being annoyed and it becomes frustration that leads to anger to the point where Haman's like, this guy Mordecai is really ticking me off and and I want him gone. But I'm so annoyed and because now he finds out, oh, he's from Jewish descent and they have their own laws and they don't pay the same kind of homage because of their beliefs, Haman basically decides it's time to get rid of all of these people in Persia. They don't belong here. So he goes to King Xerxes again. They don't know uh, Esther is related. Haman goes to the king and says, there's a group of people who refuse to obey what you've put in place. They're not honoring people the way they're supposed to, and we need to take care of it or it's going to become a problem. And Xerxes is like, well, what should we do? And he says, well, why don't we pick a day and and and, and people can, can basically kill them because we don't need them around. We don't want them around here. And so the king's like, all right, go ahead, put it together. So he puts an edict together. They decide on a certain date and it goes out all over the nation. Well, obviously Mordecai finds out and he's like terrified for his people. So he says to the, the people, you need to fast and pray. This is bad news. And Esther sees that Mordecai is incredibly distraught over what's going on. And is like, what's going on? And Mordecai's like, you don't understand. There's an edict that's gone out. And this is about the annihilation of our entire people group. This is genocide. Esther, you've got to do something. If you've ever heard a message out of the book of Esther in the past, it's probably right here. And in Esther chapter four, verse 13, Mordecai says to Esther, do not think, but because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent uh, at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And you and your father's family will perish. And Mordecai says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And there have been a million messages preached about you and I and for such a time as this and let's live courageously. And those are great messages, but that's not what I want to talk about today. Esther says to Mordecai, I hear what you're saying, but the king hasn't requested me for six months. That's bad news. She says, I, I'm, I'm willing, but here's what you need to do. You need to go and fast for three days and I'm gonna fast for three days and at the end of that three days, I'm gonna come before the king and if I perish, so be it. But I'm willing to have the courage to go and do this thing. So three days goes by. She goes before the king, putting her life on the line because if the king isn't favorable about this, she's way out of line for doing it. And the king sees her walk in and, and, and says, hey, what is it that you want? Clearly you're here for some reason. Is there something I can do for you? I, I want to help you. What's going on here? So he's gracious. And Esther bows and, and says, you know, king, I have a request, um, but why don't we do this? Why don't we have a banquet tonight? And if you can be there, obviously I'll be there and please invite Haman. So all of a sudden that night they have a banquet. And Haman shows up and Haman is thinking, man, this is amazing. Like it's the king, it's the queen, and it's me. Like I must be pretty important. Things are going so good for me right now, having no idea what could happen. And so the banquet happens and the king says, look, I know that your request isn't that we can have a meal together. What is it that you want? 
And Esther's a little nervous here and she doesn't necessarily speak up right away. She basically says, tell you what, why don't, why don't we do this? Can we have another banquet tomorrow? And, and, and it'll be you and me and, and bring Haman and I'll let you know what's going on. And the king's like, you know what? Absolutely, we'll do that. Well, Haman leaves excited like, unbelievable. I just had a personal banquet with Queen Esther and and, King Xerxes, and man, things are going so good for me. And he walks by Mordecai on his way out of the palace. And again, Mordecai doesn't give him the same homage and bow down or anything, and he gets so angry. So listen to this. He heads home, and when he gets home, he says, you guys, listen, I I, I realize, this is Haman. Haman's like, I'm so blessed. And look at this beautiful place that I live and look at all that we have and look at these great kids and and my wife. And man, life is so amazing. And guess what? I got invited to a banquet today, which is amazing with just the queen and the king. And tomorrow there's gonna be another one and the queen wants me to be there. Like things are going so good for me right now. And, and, And yet then he takes a turn and says, but you know what? I'm as mad as ever. And I'm so furious because I just passed Mordecai and that date hasn't come yet and we haven't dealt with, with these, this people group. And so I'm frustrated. I'm not, and, and the people say to him, his family and friends reply, tell you what, hey man, here's the deal. Why don't you set up a poll tomorrow morning and pale him on the poll, go to the banquet and you don't even have to think about it anymore. And Haman's like, check, let's go ahead and do that. And again, this guy's got way more power than he clearly should have. So they, they, they set up a poll, everybody goes to bed. Now I want you to listen because this is where you got to understand only God. This is the moment where it's like only God could orchestrate what's about to happen. Okay. Haman the next morning has a plan to kill Mordecai and go to a banquet and everything's great. Well, that night as everybody's sleeping, it says that the king couldn't sleep very well. And as he's tossing and turning, he, he, he called in one of his attendants and, and says, hey, could you read to me the history of my kingship so far? Because I'm having trouble sleeping. And apparently that's like a good way to fall asleep. So, you know, it's that boring being a king. But the, the attendant is reading to him kind of the record of his, his reign and stuff. And he gets to this place where he reads about Mordecai actually saving him from an assassina- assassination plot. And, and the king's like, well, wait a minute. You're telling me that, that Mordecai did? I remember, hey, did we ever do anything to honor him? And the attendant's like, well, no, we never did. It doesn't say anything in here. And he's like, man, we got to fix this. And he hears some commotion outside. And he says, he this attendant, who's outside? Hey, Haman's coming. So Haman walks in at this moment. Again, only God could do this. Haman's you know, high on life, going life is good and all this stuff. He, Haman walks in and the king says, hey, what should I do to somebody that I really want to show honor for? Clearly Haman's thinking he's talking about me. So Haman goes, tell you what, if you want to honor somebody, give them a royal robe and have them ride through the city on a royal horse with the signet on the horse's chest and have people parading the horse by yelling out, this is how the king treats those that act honorably. This is how the king treats those that act honorably. And, And the king's like, tell you what, Haman, that's an incredible idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. It has all the drama you can imagine in the story. And so... Sure enough, that's what Haman has to do. And in his shame, he's literally strutting through the city as Mordecai's on this horse, like, this is crazy. You didn't know this was going to happen. And Haman's yelling out, this is how God, or this is how the king honors those who um, act honorably towards him. And he's completely shamed. So he ends up after that going to this banquet. Again, this is cool. King, queen, me, things are good. He gets to the banquet and the king finally at the banquet asks, Esther, what's going on here? What is it that you really want? I'm happy to help you. What can I do? And she says, King, I would not ask this if it were about me. 
I wouldn't ask this if it were just about my immediate family. It wouldn't be a big deal. But because there's something big going on, I've got to ask you something. And he says, well, what is it? He says, there is a plot for my people to be annihilated. And that's when you can imagine for him. And he's like, uh-oh, she's part of that group of people. And she says, there's a plot for my people to be killed and an edict has gone out and I'm here to beg for the life of my people. And you can imagine Haman's like, oh, this isn't good. And, and the king says, and I don't know how many edicts he might sign, but he doesn't kind of remember that he signed that edict apparently. And he says, well, wh- who, who put this together? What's going on? And she turns and points and says, it's that wicked man, Haman. Now, let, let me stop for a second, okay? Now the tables have taken a major turn, but let me just remind you, this is a great warning for you and I because where Haman epitomizes boastful, proud, rude, and self-seeking, it is a great warning for you and I where at times we're kind of full of ourselves, where at times we're kind of flippant and rude to other people, where at times we have a relational superiority, meaning maybe I'm the dad or the mom and the kids are little so I can get away with it, or I'm the boss and they're under me so I can say whatever I want, however I want, and they just have to obey or I'll just write them up. And so I'm flippant with having relational superiority. It's a reminder that if God can orchestrate things like this, we really ought to deal in our hearts with anything that has to do with you and I living boastfully, pridefully, rudely, and constantly seeking our own agendas. It's a great warning because Haman's story is a study in contrast right after this. Haman has a bag put over his head and he's dragged off to be impaled on the same pole he set up for Mordecai. And the edict is flipped around where the king says, on that day, if people come at your people, Queen Esther, let them know they can exact vengeance and take care of it because you don't need to have your people killed. And that's what happens. And that's where, again, the the Jews historically look at the Feast of Purim as a celebration of God's delivering power from genocide. It is a powerful story. But let me for a moment, again, take a sidebar. If Haman represents being boastful and proud, and rude, and self-seeking, Esther is the study in contrast. See, the the message version of, of those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is this, love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Love doesn't force itself on others and isn't always me first. Some of the words that embody boastful, if you do some searching dictionary type stuff, you'll find bragging on one's self, to speak with excessive pride about our own accomplishments. Here's some words, cocky, pompous, egotistical. If you look up the word proud and do a little homework on that word, we we have an idea of what it means, but if you look it up, exaggerated belief in one's own importance, haughty, superior, lacking humility, arrogant, dishonoring. You look up rude, careless with the disposition of others, their thoughts and their feelings. Rude, discourteous, impolite, or insulting. And of course, self-seeking, superior, egocentric, obsessed with self, seeking selfish ends. That's Haman. Whereas Esther is the contrast of that. And this is the word I want to ring in all of our ears. It's the word humility. Esther had humility. She she says to Mordecai, you've got to fast. She comes before the king, putting her life on the line and and yet bows humbly, you know, if it pleases the king. 
She, she, she brings up as she says the request, please hear my request. Don't get angry. Don't, don't, don't judge me. Please do something. Proverbs 29, 23, if you're taking notes, Proverbs 29, 23 says this, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. It's almost like this proverb was written for the story of Esther. Let me ask you this. How much do you and I think greatness is somehow about increasing influence, increasing resources, money, increasing our position in life? How much of our lives are spent considering or wasting energy on climbing a ladder of success or acquiring more? Well, let me tell you something. If you want to have strained relationships, try to one-up everyone around you. If you want to have distance relationally to other people, pull rank. Jockey for position. Make yourself somehow higher than they are one way or another. Because that's what Haman was all about. Because he had the title of second in command. He expected, and not only that, demanded that everybody give him that kind of honor. And when it didn't happen, it wasn't simply a, man, they should really change their behavior. It was a, how do we deal with this? And that's not good. See, for you and I, while we don't have the same power to to commit genocide, dear Lord, you you think about for you and I in a position of of relational superiority, like I said, a boss or you're the dad or the mom or or whatever it might be, maybe it's this. And I think of this as a dad. Where, where my kid, one of my kids has done something wrong and I overreact. I fly off the handle far more than I ever should. And I got to come back and pick up the pieces relation going, you know what? You didn't deserve that and I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that kind of reaction. I'm so sorry. Think about it. M- maybe you feel like you have to prove yourself to other people. Maybe you're a name dropper or maybe you do one up others. It's easy to look at others and go look at what they do. But think about in our own hearts, what is it that we do? Or maybe it's simply this. We're quick to say something without thinking of how those words will land in the hearts of other people. I've said before, one of the great things to learn is not only is it the right thing to say, but is it the right time and is it the right way? Because those filters matter just as much as is it the right thing to say? Or maybe it's as simple as this. My dad can beat up your dad. Okay, just kidding. Let me, let me remind you that Jesus flips the script for you and I. He doesn't rebuke the idea that we might seek greatness. In fact, when that idea comes up with the disciples, it's a reminder. And in Matthew 23, verse 11, he says this, the greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. We've said so many times before, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world are like upside down opposites. Give to receive, die to live. But he says, Jesus says, humble yourself and God will take care of the exalting. So if you want to be great, become the servant of all. It comes down to one simple point today, and it's this, to understand greatness, seek humility. To understand greatness, seek humility. Not thinking less of yourself, as someone once said, 
but thinking of yourself less. Peter, who was a disciple, followed Jesus for years and then was a leader in the first century church. If you ever see the book of Acts, he was one of the first leaders to rise up. And he said this when he wrote 1 Peter, we have it in chapter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Practically, when we think of being boastful, proud, rude, and self-seeking, all I would say is consider the opposite. Instead of boasting about yourself, what if you boasted about others and celebrated their wins? What if you had a, a pride in the accomplishments of other people and elevated what they've done over what you've done and you were okay with that? What if instead of being rude, saying something in a way you shouldn't say it, you actually filtered through how you say something so that when it's said, it doesn't hurt the other person like it needs to? Or what does it look like for you to make the lives of other people great? Again, Jesus said, you want to be great? Serve others. Be great, but do it by serving others. Max Lucado, um, he's been one of my favorite authors since I first gave my life to Christ way back in 1992. And the reason is because I love how he makes things so simple. He writes about spiritual topics and right out of scripture, but he, he makes them really, really simple. And, and he wrote this uh, in, in regard to kind of the same conversation we're having. Would you do what Jesus did? He swapped a spotless castle for a grimy stable. He exchanged the worship of angels for the company of killers. He could hold the universe in his palm, but gave it up to float in the womb of a maiden. If you were God, would you sleep on straw, nurse from a breast, and be clothed in a diaper? I wouldn't, but Christ did. If you knew that only a few would care that you came, would you still come? If you knew that those you loved would laugh in your face, would you still care? If you knew the tongues you made would mock you, the mouths you made would spit at you, the hands you made would crucify you, would you still make them? Christ did. Would you regard the immobile and invalid more important than yourself? Jesus did. He humbled himself. He went from commanding angels to sleeping in the straw, from holding stars to clutching Mary's finger. The palm that held the universe took the nail of the soldier. Why? Because that's what love does. It puts the beloved before itself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4, and by the way, yes, I keep repeating this on purpose because my hope is you get it memorized. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always trusts, always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And Father, I pray today, as we all drive away, as we log off of watching online right now, whatever it might look like, God, my prayer 
is that, yes, this is a tall order. Yeah, the bar is really high when we look at the way Jesus loved and the challenge for us to love like that. Nevertheless, I pray for every single one of us that we desperately need your Holy Spirit to get to the deep recesses of our own hearts that sometimes in our lives, it's easy to point at others and go, look at them, they're prideful. Look at them, they sure like to boast. Look at them, they sure are rude. Look at them, it seems like they always want their own way. And really, it's easy to find that in others, but God, would you, through your spirit, do some inventory in our own hearts that it's not only them, it's us. We can be as guilty of it as anybody, and yet I pray through the work of your spirit that this isn't a message that we leave feeling condemned, but a message where we allow your spirit to deal with those things in our hearts that aren't supposed to be there because that's not what love is. Help us love like Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks again, everybody, for taking the time today to be with us. I want to encourage you. Um, I realize that you know, right now we're doing drive up, and that's kind of how it's going to go for a bit here, and we're all trying to figure out, well, when does this end? When do things look different? And again, that's something just to pray about because it is quite a mystery right now. Uh, nevertheless, I want to encourage you, make it a point to continue to be here Sunday to Sunday. And I know it's unique. We do have every week that kids content so your kiddos can enjoy what they're doing with Grove Kids as, as we kind of do main service like this. Um, but make it a point to be here. Encourage you to invite others. There's plenty of others that would want to join you and of course drive their own car, I'm sure. But um, make it a point to be here. Another thing is this. Yes, we are all deeply concerned about, hey, when are we going to be able to gather again? When are we going to be able to be in a building again? But the reminder, and it's kind of a sidebar, but I want to take a second and say this. I don't want to become so fixated, and it's important, but I don't want to become so fixated on when we can meet again in a building that we lose sight of the fact that, please know, this is not church. This building is not the church. Our services is not the church. Jesus reminds us that you and I we're the church, and so when we leave here, this is great for encouragement. Yes, it's biblical to gather. I get that. At the same time, let's not think for a second that the kingdom of heaven has to take a big hit because we can't meet in a building. We can do this, and hopefully you're encouraged and sharpened and built up so that we can go out and every day, wherever we go, whatever we do, what does it look like for you and I to be the church in our neighborhood? What does it look like? to? It's stuff we've been saying for years. And so we're not going to let it be. We can't meet, so it can't be church. No, no, Let's encourage and sharpen and be challenged so we can go out and every day love others, shine the light of Christ to others, help others see who Jesus is. And by the way, it's a great opportunity for some people who are struggling with anxiety right now. As you see that, it's a great opportunity for you to say, you know, I know this sounds super spiritual or whatever, but, but man, there's something about my faith in Christ that I feel at times that same anxiety, but I love that I know he's right with me. I love that he is my, my peace. He is my hope. He is what's going to get me through. And maybe that sounds weird to you or spiritual to you, but I want to encourage you that if you've never considered just praying, Jesus, help me. It's a great opportunity to share more than just, hey, let, 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 let's do stuff but actually being able to verbalize why your faith matters to people around you that might be struggling right now. 
And so don't ever forget that. That's super important. And it's not just up to maybe a pastor with a microphone on a Sunday, but you every single day, opportunity to shine and share the love of Jesus. So I know that's a sidebar sermon. So there you go. You got two for one today. Um, But hey, as you make your way out, a couple of things I mentioned. If you have food to drop off because you weren't able to make it yesterday, that's awesome. You can do that. If you have giving to drop off, that's great too. I know right now we're not allowed to hand anything out, whether it's envelopes or cards about the service and stuff. Um, But if you do want to drop that off, and yes, we absolutely do appreciate as a church your financial faithfulness. So um, you can also give online and we encourage that at grove.church. So anyway, um, that's that. As you make your way out, a couple of things. Yes, there is a parking crew. Please be patient with the process. Follow their directions. And I know it's only one neighbor, but we did have a neighbor get a little bent out of shape about so many cars going through the neighborhood. Just make sure as you're going through, if that's the way you're exiting, that you do it respectfully. Stop at the sign. Go slow. Um, Don't get crazy just because we're trying to be careful and be good neighbors. So anyway, Thanks again for being here. God bless. Have an awesome week. And uh, again, we'll be here next Sunday. Thanks. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.